Now, she said that people are not bare food. Um, there might be a guy in the Bible who would beg to differ with that. Um, I'm going to tell you about that story in just a few minutes, but did you like the recreation there of the bear? That was pretty good, wasn't it? Um, I'm not even going to go there with the bear scat. We're going to leave we're going to leave that one alone. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for showing up today. You know, I sold somebody, um, I got the coveted Sunday, the first Sunday after Reggie Joyner, the first Sunday of spring break, and time change Sunday. I mean, how can it get any better than that? So I'm actually pretty excited that you showed up on this Sunday. Thank you for doing that. I'm excited about our topic, so uh, let's jump in. Have you ever played the... Um, if only game, and you know how the if only game goes, the, how that game goes, right? If only I had such and such, then my life would be nicer, easier, better. If only I had a better job, then my life would be better. If only I had more money, then my life would be better. If only God would answer that prayer. If only God would take care of this problem. If only I had a husband. If only I had a wife. If only I had a beard like Josh Crumb. <laughs> if only I had shoes like Josh Crumb. You know, if only I had a better husband. If only I had a more romantic husband. If only I had a husband who made more money. If only I had a husband who looked like Ryan Gosling. If only I had a husband who looked like Ryan Riddles. If only I had a husband named Ryan. You know, you know how the if only game goes, right? Now here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to hear today's Bible lesson or today's Bible story through the lens of your greatest need. I want you to hear today's Bible lesson through the lens of your biggest need if only. We're in a series that we're calling Extraordinary. We're looking at some stories from the life of a prophet named Elisha, who did some extraordinary things. And our topic today is extraordinary faith, and I think you'll see how you can have that kind of faith as well as we go along this morning. I'm just going to jump into this story, and to do so, I think you need some context. So, to understand. So let me give you this context. There was a king. His name was King Joram. He was a king in Israel. His dad, his father before him, had been the king in Israel. His name was King Ahab. Well, King Ahab had an arrangement or some sort of agreement with another king, a king from Moab named King Misha, that every year, for whatever reason, King Misha would give him 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams. When King Joram became king, the son of King Ahab, King Misha stopped doing that. King Joram did not like that. Probably not only because it was hard on his economy, but he felt disrespected. And kings don't like to be disrespected, right? Well, no man likes to be disrespected as that goes. You know, you take three or four alpha males, you put them in a room and you lock the door and they'll kill each other, right? 
because that's just the way men are. Well, anyway, King Joram didn't like the fact that he was being disrespected. So he decided to go to war against the king of Moab, King Misha. But he wasn't a stupid guy. He figured it out. He thought, if I'm going to go to war, I'll get some help. So he contacted the king of Judah, King Jehoshaphat, who also happened to be related to him. They were cousins or something like that. And he said, look, I'm going to go to war against the king of Moab. Will you join me? And King Jehoshaphat said, we're in. We'll join you. Then there was another king, king, uh, king of Edom, who they also had an alliance with. So King Joram went to the king of Edom and he said, will you join me? I'm going to go to war because I need to kick this guy's backside for what he's doing for me. And king of Edom said, I'm in too. So the three of them head out to war against the king of Moab. Now, everything was trending favorably for King Joram at this time, right? He's about ready to go, you know, kick the backside of this guy who was disrespecting him. He had a couple other kings and their soldiers who were going to join in. He'd had three to one odds. Everything's trending favorably. Then something bad happened. Anybody have that ever happened to them? Right when things seem to just be going well and things are going upward in your life, something bad happens. You finally get the job you're looking for and the company downsizes and phases out your job. You've dated someone for three months now and you're beginning to think he or she might be the one. And over dinner in a restaurant they say, you know, maybe we ought to start dating other people. You've looked forward to for months and years your retirement. Your retirement comes and as soon as you retire, just one health problem after another. You finally feel like you're getting your finances under control and in order. You know, you've, you've put some debt behind you. You say, now I can start saving some money. Your car breaks down and you have to buy a new car. Well, that's what's happening to King Joram. Right when he thinks things are going well, things go bad. And I want to show you what happened to him and how this happened. Um, we're going to spend our time in 2 Kings chapter 3 this morning. Many of the stories about Elisha the prophet are recorded in 2 Kings. And here's what it says. This is 2 Kings 3.9. The king of Edom and his troops joined them and all three armies traveled along the roundabout route through the wilderness for seven days. Now here's the bad thing that happened. But there was no water for the men or their animals. So they're taking this route. We can assume it's strategic. We don't know why these three... Um, countries who were going out to war took this route. Maybe it was because it was the easiest route to get their soldiers through. You know, you think about it, three nations going to war, that's a lot of soldiers. Maybe it's because it was the element of surprise. They thought this would kind of hide them, keep them obscure, so they could sneak up and attack um, the king of Moab. We don't know that. Here's what we know. They got out there and could not find any water. There was no water supply for them. Now, I want to show you King Joram, the king we're talking about, his reaction to this. But before I do that, let me give you some background information about all these three kings who formed an alliance. First of all, King Joram. He was not a good king. He was not a, goodly, or not a godly king. You know, we told you his father was King Ahab. King Ahab was a really bad king. Um, and, and King Joram probably wasn't as bad as him, but he's, King Joram still wasn't a godly king. He didn't follow God. He kind of ignored God. Then there was the king of Edom. He was actually a pagan king. He had no interest in anything related to God. 
And then there was King Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Judah. He was actually a pretty good king, and he was actually a godly king. So those are those three kings. But keep in mind that King Joram really didn't want to have much to do with God. So they get out there with those three armies to go to war, and there's no water supply. Now I want you to notice King Joram's reaction. This is 2 Kings 3.10. He says this, What should we do? The king of Israel cried out, The Lord has brought the three of us here to let the king of Moab defeat us. Do you get the idea that he's blaming God for them being where they are? He kind of ignored God most of his life. He gets in a situation where he thinks he needs God's help and God doesn't come through and he blames God for it. Now that might sound familiar, right? I mean, we can all have that tendency where if things are going well, we keep God kind of at arm's length. But then the minute something happens in our life, bad or a crisis or something, we're like, God, where are you? I need you. Why aren't you here for me? And that leads us to a principle. And before I give you that principle, understand this, that most of the time when we get in a tough situation or a crisis situation or a situation where we're desperate or a situation where we need help, our response to God is usually to do this. We pray and we say something like, God, get me out of this situation. God, I don't need this in my life. I don't want this kind of pain in my life. God's agenda is not necessarily to remove you from those kind of situations in your life. Because God has a bigger and a better agenda for you. And that leads us to our bottom line this morning. And our bottom line, or the principle I want you to get is this. My greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives me to depend on God. Now, it may take us a while to learn this principle in our lives. It may take us a while to accept this principle in our lives, especially when we're going through a difficult situation. But it's so important that we realize that my greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives me to depend on God. If I look back over my life, the times that were the most difficult, the times that were hardest for me, my instinctive reaction, my first prayer was almost always, God, get me out of this situation. God, I don't want to go through this. God, please come through for me. What I learned is that God didn't always remove me from those situations. But in every one of those situations, it actually drew me closer to God, and I ended up in a better place because of what I considered to be a bad situation. Because my greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives me to depend on God. And that's what we're going to see happening back in our story here. Um, the story of King Joram as well. So, now that I've introduced you to him, I want you to meet Elisha. Um, we, we said that this extraordinary series is kind of based on him and his life and the stories about him. He's going to enter the story, and I'll show you how he's going to enter the story by reading to you verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. But King Jehoshaphat of Judah, remember he was the godly king, asked, is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ask the Lord what to do through him. One of King Joram's officers replied, Elisha, the son of Jehoshaphat, is here. He used to be Elijah's personal assistant. Jehoshaphat said to him, Yes, the Lord speaks through him. So the king of Israel 
King Jehoshaphat of Judah and the king of Edom went to consult with Elisha. Last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, when Josh Crum introduced this series, he talked about this guy by the name of Elisha. And remember, there, there were two prophets. There was Elijah, spelled with a J, and the guy who followed him, he was Elisha with an S-H. We're looking at Elisha, the second prophet, to come along. I don't know if you know much about Elisha. He was a very interesting guy, a very colorful character. At times he did things that when you read about it, you just feel like this guy's a little bit crazy, you might say. But he also did some extraordinary things. In his rookie year as a prophet, he held back the um, waters of the Jordan River, and he actually went into a town that had bitter or poisonous or polluted water, and he purified the water for them. I mean, amazing miracles he did. It's probably worth you knowing, too, that if you read the Bible, there are three times in the Bible where there seemed to be a larger concentration of miracles, or they seem to be more prevalent. One was during the time of Moses. Another time was, of course, during the time of Jesus. The third time was actually when Elijah and Elisha were prophets. So you see Elisha do some extraordinary things during this time period. Remember I told you that Elisha was a little bit crazy at times? Let me tell you one story about Elisha. He was walking through a village one day, and these young men kind of started making fun of him. And they actually didn't want him around, so they said to him, get out of here. You know, we want you to leave. But the way they said it to him was they said, you need to get out of here, baldy. Which tells us that apparently Elisha was bald. So I want to tell you what Elisha did. And every bald guy in here just woke up, you know. Every guy with receding hairline just woke up and said, yes, please tell me what he did, all right? Okay, this, we're going to show bald guys a little love here this morning, all right? And Elisha's going to be your guy. The first thing the Bible says he did when these young men started calling him baldy was he cursed them in the name of the Lord. I don't know what that means. I think I'd like to hear what that was like. Although, knowing Elisha and the fact that he was a little crazy, my guess is that when he cursed them in the name of the Lord, we probably would have to have edited what he said. The second thing he did was he called out these bears from the woods to maul and devour these young men. Now, I'm not saying everything Elisha did was right or appropriate. I'm just telling you what the Bible says he did. He, he actually did that. It is in your Bible. I am not making this up, all right? You can read your Bible on your own. It's actually 2 Kings 2, the, right at the end of the chapter, when we're going on here in 2 Kings 3. So read it on your own. You'll see that he actually did this. But here's the moral of the story. It's this. Don't mess with bald guys, all right? <laughs> Told you I was going to show bald guys some love this morning. There you go. Do not mess with bald guys. And here's why. You never know when you're going to come across a bald guy who's in good with God, who's going to call a bear to maul you if you treat him the wrong way. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but there aren't any bears around. Wrong. If you go to the DNR website for indicators, Anna, I'm not making this up either. You go check it out yourself. In 2015, there was the sighting of a black bear several times in northern Indiana, near South Bend, Indiana. I kid you not. This last year, 2016, 
there has been a sighting of a black bear in southern Indiana in three different counties, in Harrison, Clark, and Washington County. Do you know where Washington County is? Two counties from here. Bartholomew, one county south is Jackson, one county south is Washington County. Some of you attend church here from Jackson County. You are one county away from a bear. You just need to know that. So if you take a bald guy who's in good with God, there are bears around. So I'm just saying, be careful what you say to a bald guy. Literally, Elisha did that. That that is actually what he did um, in that situation. So, okay, I've digressed significantly. Let's get back to our story in 2 Kings chapter 3 and see what it says. Um, So what happens is these guys call out, these kings call out for help. Um, They call out for Elisha. And Elisha appears on the scene. And remember I told you he was a colorful character? Um, Right out from the start we read about him, it's interesting to see what he says to them. I'll read it to you here, verses 13 and 14. Why are you coming to me? Elisha asked the king of Israel. Go to the pagan prophets of your father and mother. But King Joram of Israel said, No, for it was the Lord who called us three kings here, only to be defeated by the king of Moab. Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I wouldn't even bother with you except for my respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah. (laughs) They say to Elisha, Would you please help us? And what does Elisha do? He shows them an attitude. He's like, I'm not even going to give you the time of day if it wasn't for King Jehoshaphat, who's a godly king. You know, why are you coming to me? You don't care about God any other time. So go to your pagan prophets. See if they can help you. Like I said, he was an interesting guy. Again, I'm not saying everything he said was right. I'm not saying everything he did. I'm just telling you what he did. Now, where did he learn to be like this? Where did he learn to show people an attitude? You know where he learned that? From his mentor. Elijah. Remember we said the two of them went together? Elijah with a J, Elisha with an S-H. Elijah was a prophet of God. And like we said, he came before Elisha. If you ever go back and read in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18, you'll see that Elijah had this confrontation with some of the pagan prophets. They were prophets of Baal. And so Elijah challenges these pagan prophets to call down fire from heaven. So they do. They're calling on their God or their gods to bring fire from heaven. And it wasn't happening. So Elijah starts taunting them. I kid you not. Again, this is in your Bible. I am not making this up. He starts trash-talking them. And he says things like, what is the matter? Is your God taking a nap? Is he on vacation? Is he going to the bathroom? Is he taking a leak or what? He really said, he, he doesn't say taking a leak, but he really does say, is your God going to the bathroom? Okay, read your Bible. It's kind of interesting, all right? Okay, everybody awake today? It was time change Sunday, so I had to use a little potty humor to keep everybody awake here. So if you think the Bible's boring, it's not. Back to Elisha. Um, he offers to help them for the sake of King Jehoshaphat. But he does what appears to us to be some strange things next. Here's verse 15. He says, Elisha, now bring me someone who can play the harp. While the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came on Elisha. (laughs) He says, 
go find the biggest, the most different, difficult instrument, the heaviest instrument there is to move and bring it here. It's like saying, go find a grand piano and bring it in, you know. Now, what's up with the harp? You know what I think is going on here, seriously? I think Elisha's looking for some mood music. Seriously, you, you can relate to that, can't you? Music affects your mood. Some of you like to listen to music when you're cleaning house or when you're cooking, when you're in your car, when you're sitting on a beach, when you're working out. There's a connection between music and worshiping God, isn't there? It's amazing how music can usher you into the presence of God. And I think that's what's going on here with Elisha too. We read that when he heard the music, the power of the Lord came upon him. So here's his prophecy for these three kings. I'm going to read it to you, verses 16 to 19. Here's what he said. This is what the Lord says. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. You will see neither wind nor rain, says the Lord. But this valley will be filled with water. Remember, that was their greatest need. They didn't have any. You will have plenty for yourselves and your cattle and other animals. But this is only a simple thing for the Lord, for he will make you victorious over the army of Moab. You will conquer the best of their towns, even their fortified ones. You will cut down all their good trees, um, stop up their springs, and ruin all their good land with stones. When God says cut down their good trees, he's referring to their food supply because they had a lot of fruit trees. When he obviously is talking about stopping up all their springs, that means their water supply would be gone. Then when it says it'll ruin all their good land with stones, that means they would put large stones in their land where they would normally plant their crops, try to plow fields with large stones in them. Now, I want to go back to you and read a verse we already read. I want to read to you verse 16 again from another translation. This is the New American Standard Translation, which is a much more literal translation. And I think it's fascinating the way it words this. Um, Here's what it says. Verse 16 in the New American Standard, it says, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. Some versions even say, dig some ditches. In other words, God was telling them to dig some ditches or trenches because he was going to fill those with water which was their greatest need at the time. And there's a principle here, and it's a principle related to faith, and it's a principle you see throughout the Bible, and it's this. Only God can send the water, but he wants me to first dig the ditch. Did God need them to dig the ditch to send the water? Of course not. He could have given them water in many different ways, whatever way he wanted. I mean, if he had wanted, he could have brought in water in ice mountain water bottles. I mean, obviously that had been a little different, but God could have done that if he had wanted to. But the reason God has them digging ditches is because God often says this to us, show me your faith and then I'll step in. And digging those ditches would have been a demonstration of their faith. Now, can you imagine what they were thinking, let alone the soldiers? We're dying of thirst, there's no water, and you're putting a shovel in my hand and making me dig a ditch, more sweat, dehydration, and so on. In other words, it took faith for them to do this. Extraordinary faith? Yes, because faith is extraordinary when you take God at His word. That's what faith is. 
Faith is taking God at his word. We don't have to make this really mystical or even over-spiritualize it. God often looks for us to show him our faith first by taking him at his word. And as I said, you see this principle play out throughout the Bible, especially when Jesus was on earth, you see it. You know, when Peter walked on water, what did he do first? He stepped out of the boat. None of the others got out of the boat in the raging storm. Peter was told by Jesus to come, and he simply took him at his word. When Jesus came across a man with a deformed hand, what did he say to the man? Hold out your hand. After the man held out his hand, Jesus healed him. He took Jesus at his word. When it was time for Jesus to heal a blind man, he told him to go wash in a pool. After the blind man did that, the blind man could see. He simply took Jesus at his word. God often asks us to show him our faith first, and then he acts. You know, if I look at the history of our church, there were several defining moments along the way. And in almost every single one of those moments, we had to take a step of faith And then God showed up in a miraculous way. I remember when we decided to change the way we were doing church to become the church we are today. A church where you can invite your friends any Sunday of the year because the services will be playing with your friends and mine. We had to commit to being all in with our vision before that vision really took hold. And it was hard. It was hard at first. It was harder than you can imagine. I remember when we decided to build this new building, there were several times Whereas a leadership team, we had to step out by faith. And, and there were many sacrificial commitments, financial commitments of Ridgers to make it possible so that we could have this facility that we have today. It's a matter of taking God at his word. That's really what extraordinary faith is. You don't have to make more of it than what it is. For example, when God's says to you, and he says this to you in the Bible, put me first financially. Give me the first 10%. Then I'll bless your life. To do that is extraordinary faith. You're simply taking God at his word. When God says to you, and he says this to you in the Bible, put me first relationally. What does he mean by that? Put others first. Love others unconditionally. Forgive others. Reconcile. Restore. Be kind. If you do that, I'll give you a heart of love and kindness, and you'll have peace in your relationships. It takes extraordinary faith to do that. That's taking God at his word. God says to you, put me first in your decisions, with your time, with your priorities, with your choices. If you do that, I won't necessarily give you an easy life, but I'll give you a fulfilling life life. When you make that decision, you're taking God at his word. That's extraordinary faith. God says, put me first in your sexuality. Honor me with the decisions you make by saving yourself for marriage and staying faithful to your spouse in marriage. I can promise you fulfillment and you can avoid so much heartache if you do that. When you make that decision, that's extraordinary faith. You're taking God at his word. Faith isn't necessarily just sitting back and doing nothing. God says, I'll do my part, but show me your faith, then I'll show you my faithfulness. 
So some of you here today just need to dig a ditch. You need to dig a trench. You need to walk out of here and find someone and seek reconciliation. You need to leave here and make a decision that says, I'm not going to do that anymore. You need to change the way you're spending your time, the way you're spending your money. Now there's a second principle from what, from what we read, and it's this. Real faith believes big, but is willing to start small. How do you dig a ditch? One shovel at a time, right? In other words, be faithful with what God has given you now. In fact, being faithful now in the small things not only shows the faith you have in God, it shows God that He can trust you. I love a verse, it's in a book called Zechariah. Zechariah is this obscure book in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. It's Zechariah 4.10. The nation of Israel was getting ready to rebuild their temple, which had been torn down. They had laid the foundation, and here's what we read in Zechariah 4.10. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. This is telling us that God loves to see us take that first step, no matter how small it is. Um, You know, we may perceive it to be small, but God loves to see us do that. And and like I said, the picture here of Israel, or Judah technically, the nation of Judah, getting ready to rebuild the temple. And it says that he loved, God loved to see Zerubbabel. That's kind of a funny name, Zerubbabel. He was the guy leading the charge with the plumb line in his hand. Now, this is a plumb line. Um, today, I don't think we use these much anymore. Everybody just uses lasers. But this is a plumb line. And what you do is, you know, you put it down and it, it lets you um, measure up a vertical line. And what this is saying is when God saw the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand, What that showed God was they were taking that first, ever so small, but that first step of faith to say, we're going to rebuild the temple. And God loves to see that kind of faith where we take Him at His word and we take that first small step. So what we read is essentially saying this, God loves it when we take that first small step. Let me ask you, what is your first small step of faith? You know, we just came out of doing the Daniel plan a few weeks ago. And for some of you, that was taking your small steps of faith. We asked you to make two goals, one for fitness, one for food. You know, something like, I'm going to start walking 30 miles a day. I'm going to cut back on sodas or desserts or eat vegetables with each meal. I'm going to throw out that pack of cigarettes and say, I'm done with that. That's taking God at His word. It could be your first step relationally to ask forgiveness from someone or to work on reconciling a relationship with someone. And saying, hey, I'll make a change. Or saying to your spouse, hey, I'll attend counseling with you because I value our relationship so much. That first small step for you with your relationship with God may be something like saying, I'm going to take my next step as a follower of Jesus and and be baptized to declare that I am a follower of Jesus. Or it may be to say, you know, I'm going to start reading my Bible five minutes every day. Or I'm going to start going to church regularly. I'm going to start volunteering at church. You know, with kids or to lead a life group. Or I'm just going to turn in my form to volunteer and see where it leads. It could mean getting your finances order. That could be your next step. 
what you perceive as a small step by taking God at his word, you know, put, starting to live a budget, spending less, retiring debt, putting God first. You get the idea. Take the first step because God loves to see us take the small step. And when that shows his, when we show him our faith like that, it activates his power in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, that's really the story of this church. Um, we have taken so many small steps, first steps, then we were able to watch God work. I remember, this is well over 25 years ago now, there were several of us from the church that went to this church leadership conference, and we were challenged to do church differently. We were challenged to create an environment for people who weren't going to church or who didn't like church or had had a bad experience at church and create an environment where they would feel comfortable attending church again if we were to invite them. We had to take that first small step, and that step was to say, so if you want us to do this, God, no matter how hard it may be, we're willing to do it. Step number one, and then just a series of small steps all along the way until we were able to look back and say, look what God has done. Because real faith believes big, but it's willing to start small. And you can do that in your life as well.